right, if you've got uh, your uh, Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to begin reading from the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through verse 6. So that's Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, going down through verse 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For who, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is going to be the theme of my talk this morning. I thought I would continue by comparing two stories from the Old Testament. One with which more of you are probably familiar with, the other one is less familiar And I thought I would begin with the less familiar of the two first, which is found in the book of Isaiah in the seventh chapter, if you want to read along. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 3 through verse 12. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Resin of Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel, or sorry, yeah, set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. Now within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, politics I find very confusing, but let me do my best to set up the context of the passage for you. You have Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. 
And he's being threatened by a coalition of two nations. One is Syria. The other is Israel, which in the book is referred to here as Ephraim. You might remember after the death of Solomon, Israel broke off from the southern kingdom. And I would argue basically at that point lost her identity. But as I understand it, the primary reason these two nations have formed a coalition is not because they want to oppose Judah. It's actually because they want to oppose Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. Assyria, which at the time was the major military power on the world stage. So basically, this is what's going on. You have Syria and Israel saying to Ahaz, you're going to join up with us and team up against Assyria, or we're going to take you out and put someone in your place that will team up with us. So from a political perspective, Ahaz basically has two choices. He can join this coalition of forces and oppose Assyria, or he can appeal to Assyria for help against them. And Isaiah comes to him, and he says, there's actually another option. You can trust in the Lord, because the threats that you're getting from Israel and the threats you're getting from Syria, they're just empty wind. You don't need to worry about these two, and you don't need to make any rash political alliances with a nation like Assyria, which was a godless, brutal, savage nation. And Ahaz is offered a miracle. Isaiah comes and speaks to him once, right? He doesn't really believe it. And then verse 10 Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. I'm assuming it's still through the prophet Isaiah. He says, all right, ask for a sign. You don't believe. Ask for a miracle. It's on the table. You get to pick. And Ahaz responds by saying, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So let's go back in time now to another story happened earlier than this one in the book of Judges. This is the one that probably more of you are familiar with, the story of Gideon, or a portion of the story of Gideon. So I'm going to be reading in Judges chapter 6. I'm going to begin with verse 33 and read all the way down through verse 40. So this is Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the, trump, the trumpet, and the, and the uh, Abiah's rites, I'm channeling Bill, I can't talk right now. Well, we're called out, <laughs> we're called out to follow him. I, I couldn't resist. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet them. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece, 
Please let it be dry on fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So this is really remarkable. You have two men here. You have Ahaz who is offered a sign. God takes the initiative, says, you want a miracle, ask for one. And then you have Gideon who asks God not for one miracle, but two. And if you read through the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, which is sometimes, for better or for worse, referred to as the Hall of Faith, you run into a list of names of people from the Old Testament that were known or reputed for being people of faith. Gideon's name is in that list. But Ahaz, all he's remembered for is being one of the many wicked kings that ruled over the people of Judah. Why? Why is the guy that asked for two signs regarded as a man of faith and the guy who refused the sign is not? And to answer that question, I think we need to Try to define faith. Mark Twain, there's a quote attributed to Mark Twain, anyway, in which he said, Faith is believing something you know ain't so. And this definition of faith is still popular today, especially amongst cynical people and unbelievers. Uh, for example, Sam Harris, uh, a very, a very well-known atheist writer, in his book, The End of Faith, wrote this. Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else and to be persuaded only to the extent that you give it. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. So you see... Faith and reason are basically pitted against each other. They are opposed according to this definition of faith. And so you have to plant your flag somewhere. You either have to choose to be a person of faith or a person of reason. Now, I would argue it's not surprising unbelievers would want to define faith in this way because it's very easy to attack faith if you define it like this. But what's sad is when this definition of faith creeps into the church. We do not take our cues from non-believers. And notice the big difference between how people like Mark Twain or Sam Harris define faith and how J.P. Moreland, a Christian author and speaker, defines faith. He says, Biblically, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God a trust in what we have reason to believe is true. Now, by the way, for the purposes of my talk this morning, I'm basically using faith, trust, and belief interchangeably. I'm not saying there's no difference between these words, but for my purposes this morning, I'm basically using them interchangeably. And you see J.P. Moore saying that faith can be defined as trust, trusting in what we have good reason to believe is true. So you see, on his definition... Faith and reason are not opposed. They're not identical. They're not the same thing, but they are complementary. And 
Another Christian writer, sorry I'm giving you so many quotes right off the bat here, but Tim Barnett takes this definition of faith and applies it to the passage in Hebrews I began with. He says, faith is the assurance and conviction of things hoped for. Assurance entails solid reason to believe something. One only has assurance when they have a sufficient amount of evidence. In fact, the new King James Version substitutes the word conviction with evidence. Therefore, Christians should have confidence in things hoped for and things unseen, like their future resurrection, because of the trustworthy evidence that has already been established. The famous physicist Walter Lewin liked to do a demonstration of the con... <laughs> I'm doing it again. Um, I was about to say the, conser uh, the conversation of energy. The, <laughs> the conservation of mechanical energy using a pendulum. Now, you might know a pendulum is basically a string or a lever that has a mass attached to the bottom of it, right? And you see them attached to clocks often because pendulums can be used to measure time. But what Dr. Lewin would do is he would set a big pendulum up in his classroom. So he has a big long rope hanging from the ceiling and a big massive ball attached to the end of it. And what he would do is he'd say, okay, I'm going to show you that I trust in physics. And I trust in the conservation of mechanical energy. He would back himself up against a wall and he would take that mass and he'd pull it right up to his chin. And he'd tell his students, according to the laws of physics, if I let this go without pushing it, if I don't give it any initial speed, if I just let it go, it'll swing out and swing back, but it's impossible for it to swing to a point higher than the point it was released from. It says it can't happen according to the physics. And so he's got himself backed up against the wall. You can actually see this on YouTube. I watched a video and the title was Trust in Physics. He backs himself up against the wall and he grabs this big massive ball and he holds it right up to his face. And he says, now I'm going to close my eyes before I release this thing. Now he might have been joking for his students, but I would probably want to close my eyes. Now that's interesting, right? Because here you've got a doctor of physics. He knows the math. He knows the physics. It is impossible for that mass to come up and hit him in the face unless he gives it some speed to begin with. And yet he closes his eyes. Why? Why does he need to? Because no matter how smart you are, you are not a purely rational person. Now, I know when I'm speaking to engineers and analysts and computer scientists, I'm stepping on some toes. And if you had feelings, those feelings would be hurt. <laughs> but but the, truth, the, truth of the, the truth of the matter is you do have feelings, right? And I don't care who you are, when you see a big, massive ball flying towards your face, instinct will kick in. And it will say, moron, there's a big, massive thing flying towards your face. You move now. And by the way, it's good that we have these instincts because they keep us alive. But notice that it's not faith or trust that's attacking reason at that point. What's attacking faith or what's attacking reason, I should say, is instinct and emotion and imagination. That's why you need faith to stand, to trust in what you have good reason to believe 
is your trust in someone who you believe is reliable. That's what faith is. Now, when we come back to these two stories we looked at, we can kind of unpack this and understand why Gideon, though he has since put God to the test twice, is considered a man of faith. And I would argue that even though that word test is used in the passage that I read, you might remember, that when Gideon is putting God to the test, he's not putting God to the test in the sense that he's trying to find out if God is powerful enough to help him. It's not like he's saying, God, I don't really know who you are. Uh, I don't know how powerful you are, but if you do this miracle for me, then I'll know that you're able to help me. I would argue Gideon would not be regarded as a man of faith if that was his attitude. He does believe in God. He believes in God. And he believes that if God is with him, he can go up against the Midianites and he will prevail. And what Gideon is doing is he's just trying to make sure that he has understood God's will. That's what Gideon is doing. He knows that if God's with me, I can go in and do this. And so I just want to make sure that God, that you're with me. And so he does the test of the fleece. Now this does raise an interesting question. I'm going to chase a little bit of a tangent because I think this is a point of curiosity for many Christians. And that is when, if ever, is it legitimate to ask God for a sign when you're trying to determine His will. And that question merits a whole sermon unto itself probably, and one that I am not even prepared to preach at this point in my life. I, I still need to learn some more stuff. I might come back to that one. But I do want to offer up some things for consideration. Um, first of all, Gideon's not buying a used car. All right? Uh, the Midianites have been walloping his people for the past seven years. For seven years, they have been oppressed. If Gideon is wrong about this, he's going to die in all likelihood. This is a life-threatening situation. He has no good reason to believe he can pull this off without God's help. So if ever there was an excuse for someone to seek a sign, I think we need to give Gideon a pass. And I would remind us that God has given us many resources by which we can make wise decisions. He's given us the wisdom of the scriptures. He's given us morality to act as boundaries. He's given us the counsel of wise friends. And more generally speaking, and we forget this all the time, we know what God's will is for our life. In a general sense, we all of us know it. It's to love God supremely and to love our neighbor. That's his will for our life. It's easy to forget that. Because it's so basic and so simple. But if you use those two principles to navigate your life, you're going to do just fine. And you know those. So I'm not saying that it's never okay to ask God for a sign, but just putting that out there for consideration. Now, when we come to Ahaz, Ahaz is not a man of faith. He does not believe in God. He has already made up his mind that the only way out of the mess he's in is he's got to make the right political alliance. That's where he's at. And when God offers him a sign, he puts on a pious face. He says, you know what? I don't want a sign. I don't want a miracle. I don't want to put God to the test. But really what he doesn't want is his own unbelief to be confirmed by the sign because he's already made up his mind that that's not what he's going to do. Now, that's very interesting 
because Ahaz, of course, is one of the few people on earth at the time that has knowledge of the one true God. He was born in the right place at the right time. He was raised as king in Judah. Educated man knew the knowledge of the God who created the universe. And yet, he's not a man of faith. Now that tells us something that gives us a very important warning about belief. When our beliefs do not enter into our intentions and our will, those beliefs become dead information. That's all it is. It goes from being a belief to just information. And information is not going to shield you from emotion and instinct and imagination when they rise up against what God has declared to be true. Information is not enough. You need faith. And I like what C.S. Lewis writes about this in the book Mere Christianity. Last quote for the morning. He says, But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, meaning the Christian faith, I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news or he is in trouble or is living among a lot of other people who do not believe it. And all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie or feels very pleased with himself or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his, desire, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I am not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I am talking about moments when a mere mood rises up against it. I think we can count ourselves fortunate that we aren't facing the kind of life-threatening situations that Gideon was facing or the situation that Ahaz was facing. I count myself fortunate, at least, that I am not in those situations. But we can still daily exercise faith. And one of the important things we have to remind ourselves of, because this is a very seductive deception, it's the idea that little things, little matters, because they are little, are insignificant. And that is not true. When it comes to matters of faith, little things are extremely significant. Things like keeping our word. Things like offering an apology when we need to. Telling the truth when it makes us look foolish. These day-to-day -day things, they're important because Jesus said, one... If you cannot be faithful in the little things, you are not going to be faithful in the big things. And we need to embrace that and understand that we've got to exercise our faith in the little things. And another reason it's very important is we are less likely to pat ourselves on the back and puff ourselves up with pride when we are faithful in the little things. Because, of course, one of the great struggles that we have to overcome is 
remembering and believing that every victory in our lives, no matter how big or small, is ultimately rooted in the grace and mercy of God. And so, doing those little acts of faith and giving God the glory. This is so important if you want to have a Christianity that's relevant, that matters. If you want your Christianity to have an impact on your life, you've got to exercise your faith. In the day-to-day, you've got to put your trust in the Lord and you will see it pay enormous dividends because faith is not something dead. It's something dynamic. It's something that's living. It ought to be something that's growing in each and every one of us. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here together as believers and to lift up your name and worship you. We pray that you would grant us faith, faith in you, and that we would trust in you and we would believe in you And that you would be glorified in our lives. In your righteous name we pray. Amen.